You're listening to an app session from the 2019 Art Conference in Anaheim, California. For more resources to equip you and your local church, visit arcchurches.com. Good afternoon, everybody. How are you? Good. Good. Good to see you. It's great to be on the West Coast from the East Coast, and uh, I'm still learning a little of the geography of where everything is, but it's a joy to be here with you. And uh, we're going to talk for a few moments about, I think, one of the most important topics in today's culture. I'm going to share with you some things I think will be valuable in terms of, of the practical aspects of what we're calling the danger of comparison. And uh, I think before we get to the practical aspects, we, I'm going to cover a little bit of the theological aspects of it and a bit of the what I would call the psychological aspects of comparison. And then I want to get into some real practical things because it's one of the most significant issues that we deal with. And so I'm glad that you were brave enough to come into the room and talk about it. Yes, we're 33 years into our church. We started in 1986, and so uh, we hope we're going to make it. We're trying the best to make it right now. We think we're going to make it after 33 years. Uh, and some of you are just getting started. Some of you are a little bit, little bit further along down the road. But wherever you are, this topic, I think, is going to be valuable to you. So let's talk about the danger of comparison. But before we do, let's pray together. Father, we love you, and thank you so much for the opportunity that we have to be together today. Thank you for each person that's here. Thank you, Lord, for the plans and purposes purposes you have for each person's life and each church is represented. We pray in the name of Jesus that you would speak to us. We ask that the power of the Holy Spirit would make something real to us today, not only for us, but as we minister to other people about this very important topic and this thing that really is, I think, permeating our culture. We pray, Lord, for blessing in this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. The danger of comparison. When I was given the topic to talk about this this concept, danger of comparison, uh, as I began to write out my thoughts relative to it, I actually titled my message initially, The Curse of Comparison. And as I began to think about the danger of comparison, and I'll define comparison for us in a moment, I realized that actually the danger of comparison is the fact that comparison is a curse. The word curse is one of the words that's used in the Bible. The concept is found there to describe something that is e- something evil or destructive that is placed upon a person's life. So if we say, I'm either blessed or I'm cursed. When you're blessed, you have good things flowing in your life. When you're cursed, you're dealing with evil or difficulty, uh, challenges that you can't seem to get past, obstacles that never seem to move out of the way. And so the idea of comparison, bringing about a curse, should from the very beginning get our attention. And so I want to talk to you for a bit about the fact of why comparison is a curse. Comparison really is simply this. It's me thinking about how my life, my circumstances, my possessions, my opportunities, my privileges, whatever it is that I may have in my life, it is using a moment of examination of my life against yours to determine where I line up in reference to your life. That's really all comparison is. And so if I compare myself, my church, whatever it might be, to another person, what I'm doing is, the actual word means to examine. To compare means to examine. It means to actually step in and to try to discover something that you can then find differences or similarities to. And so when we talk about comparison, especially in our culture today, part of what we're dealing with in our culture is we're dealing with a culture that is really permeated with the spirit of comparison, primarily today in ways far more than it's ever been because of social media. And I'm going to talk a bit about that in just a bit, the importance of realizing how that affects us and how it affects 
uh, the people in our church, especially how it affects our young people, how it affects every dynamic of our life. But when I am comparing myself to you, what I'm doing is I'm taking a look at your life and I'm seeing how my life lines up with your life. And here's the curse. If I see that my life is, from my vantage point, superior to your life, then that creates a whole set of problems for me called pride and arrogance and all kind of ugly things that should never be in my life. If I look at my life and my life does not compare well with your life, then I'm now dealing with another set of emotional issues, jealousy and envy and a variety of things that we can feel in those moments. And really, oftentimes, a feeling of low self-worth. And that's part of what's happening in our culture. That one of the things the adversary is using to really eat away at the value and the self-worth of people is this thing called comparison. Because if I'm looking at you and my life doesn't look like your life in a positive light, the way that I would like for it to be, and yours looks so much better than mine, your church looks better than mine, you're having more people at church than I am, or greater things happening in your church than I feel like I'm having in mine, then suddenly I'm at a disadvantage. I'm in a place now where I'm in a place of defensiveness and destructiveness in my own thinking process. And so psychologically, it begins to have an impact upon me negatively. And anything that affects you psychologically also affects you spiritually. Anything that affects you spiritually always affects you psychologically. Because the Bible is very clear about the fact that we're created in three parts. The spirit, soul, and body. What happens in your spirit affects your soul and your body. What happens in your soul affects your spirit and your body. We are we're this unique creation of God. And so when you begin to think in a certain way about life in comparison to other people, it's going to affect your emotions. And there are a lot of people now that are living their lives with either low-grade uh, sense of jealousy or envy or frustration about their life. Feeling as though I'm not getting the best that I could get. Look at other folks' lives. I'm comparing myself in that regard. And it's eating away at confidence and eating away at self-image to the point that it actually hinders us in our work for God. And I, I would just say to us today, we don't want anything, obviously, that hinders us in our work for God, right? That's why it's, one of, that's why it's a curse the adversary is using. It's very, very prevalent in our world. And it's not new. Comparison is not new. Because all the way back, I was doing a little bit of study related to this, and comparison runs all, actually all the way through the Bible. It actually starts in Genesis chapter 4 where Cain and Abel had their issue, right? Cain and Abel, Cain compared himself with his brother. And what happened was the end result of that. Nothing good, right? Not murder, right? And of course, Cain suffered with his life. We go now to, to, uh, to Joseph. Remember Joseph in the Bible? And Joseph was loved by his father Jacob and his brothers hated him and he was sold into slavery. What produced that? It was comparison. The brothers hated him because he seemed to be more favored by his father. And again, we can walk through one story after another in the Bible. This thing has been around for a long time. In just a moment, I'm going to read a verse actually from James chapter 3 uh, that will illustrate the impact of comparison. But I'll, I'll, give it, I'll illustrate one more point from the New Testament. Even, even Peter, the great apostle, struggled with this. In John chapter 21, after Jesus restored Peter, after his falling away and how... Jesus met him and said, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And and Peter three times affirms that he loves Jesus again. There's this restoration moment. Then Jesus tells him, you can read this again in John 21. Jesus tells Peter how he's going to have to suffer for him uh, in his death. He talks, actually predicts and prophesies actually the the, the martyrdom of Peter. 
And while Peter's hearing these words, he's looking over and he's seeing his brother John, his, his spiritual brother John there. And he asks Jesus the question, what about him? Anybody remember that passage? So he's been told what's going to happen with him, but he's not, he's not, he's not satisfied with just what's happening with him. He's got to find out what's going to happen with John too. So he asks Jesus the question, what about him? And does anyone remember what Jesus said back to, to, to Peter? He said, don't worry about him. You follow me. So there in that moment, there was a, a very strong issue that Peter was already dealing with that could have sidetracked his ministry had, G, had, had he not been responded to by Jesus and responded to the correction that Jesus brought. So it's extremely important. I just really want to drive home. This thing is permeating our culture today far more than we imagine, and it really is an epidemic among our teens. Our kids and social media are getting bombarded tremendously by the negative uh, aspects of what social media is presenting to them. And there's an actual a disease that we actually psychologically refer to now as, as Facebook depression. Because here's the thing to remember, and I'll talk a bit more about this in, in a moment. You're, if, I wanna, if I wanna know, if, if you want me to know something about you, then all I have to do is go to your Instagram or Facebook and I can find out what I want to know about you, or here's more important, what you want me to know about you. That's a big difference. It's not that I can really find out about you, what I find out is what you want me to know about you. Okay. And so because all of this social media provides an opportunity, a platform, and I'm not anti-social media, I, I use it, and I think it's can be a valuable tool, tool for the kingdom, and I'm not saying that all comparison is related to social media, because as I said a moment ago, uh, we had it before social media existed. I don't think Kay Nabel had Facebook pages, okay? <laughs> right? So it's, it's existed for time and eternity because we have a problem called S-I-N, it's called sin, right? And so because of sin, we have this issue that that's presents itself to us over and over again. But here's the thing, we have this opportunity in today's culture to tell the world what we want the world to know or think about our life. And so we always post the nicest pictures, we always post the greatest meals, we never post our burnt toast, okay, right? Uh, we, we never post some horrible restaurant we went to. We never post some lousy, most disgusting vacation we had, right? We're posting the best pictures. We're telling the best stories. We're presenting the best us uh, to the people that we want to know something about our life. But it's only being presented from our perspective. And so when we look and peer into another person, another person's life, immediately when you peer into another person's life, as they're telling you what they want you to know about their life, suddenly you're now in a place already of temptation. Every time you look at an Instagram post or every time that you look at a Facebook post that where someone is presenting the highlights of their life, immediately you are in a situation of temptation. How you deal with that will determine what happens to you emotionally because you'll start thinking certain things. And as you think, so you feel. So your, your feelings are always related to your thinking. So that, that's why this thing is such a, a critical aspect of our culture, such a significant aspect of what we need to deal with in, in, a, in a very relevant way in our culture. I think most importantly, something that you and I as leaders in the body of Christ need to model well for people, right? We as leaders can't handle uh, this issue of comparison well. Will our church be able to handle it well? No. 
So we have the responsibility as leaders of setting the right example to those that are under us, and especially for those of you who are involved in youth ministry, young adult ministry, uh, the next generation kind of ministry. So vital that you have a handle on this topic and you, you know how to handle it and, and, and navigate it in your own life. Take a look with me, if you will, at James chapter 3. By the way, these notes are, I believe, on the, on the app session uh, uh, on the app session uh, app there or the download and you can find them there but I want to read for you James chapter 3 verses 14 through 17 I want you to listen to what it says here because it's a very significant statement James the apostle is writing he just talked about your tongue and how what a terrible fire it can it can start and it's like your tongue is the rudder of your life and then he, he slips from that topic into another topic that's kind of combined together with a variety of things. And he writes in verse 14, But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. Did you hear that? Listen to it again. This is verse 16. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder in every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. James says, here's a word of wisdom and guidance for you. Anytime envy shows up in your life. By the way, is that not what, what happens whenever we begin to take a look at somebody else's life and it looks better than our life? We begin to say, well, I wish, you know, why do they have this privilege and I don't? Why do they have these, these good things in my life? My life seems so mundane. And, and it begins to undermine your self-worth and your self-value and your appreciation and your gratitude for what you do have in life. It begins to kind of remind you of what you feel like you don't have in life. All those things, that kind of an envy creates, James says, it creates disorder and every evil work. What I've noticed in my own life, and my wife and I have talked about this for, for a, a number of times over the, the years, uh, the social media that has been prominent, is that if you don't approach social media with the right perspective, it creates disorder in your thinking. Right? You don't think right. Because you begin to think that that person's life is kind of always like that much better than yours and there's this disorder that begins to occur and the devil loves to work in chaos see if he can get chaos in you he can get chaos through you and create chaos around you got that so if he can get chaos in your thinking then chaos is created by your life and created chaos is created in the environment around you and so that's why James was so, so wise when he says it creates disorder in every evil practice. Every generation has this issue going back time immemorial, all the way back to the time of sin, uh, originally entering into humanity. So I'm going to talk to you today about, about 13 things that we can do to help keep this kind of comparison stuff out of our lives. Then we're going to have time for question and answers to talk about how these things apply to us. I'll give you 13 because these I just wrote a list of things that I try to do in my life, okay? Because I don't care how old you are, how young you are, what age you are, you can still compare yourself to other people, right? Still can. So I'm going to give you the 13 things that I use, try to use in my life to keep my head straight so I don't get into disordered thinking 
which creates, creates a disordered lifestyle and chaos around me and problems for me in relationship to comparison with other people because it's very dangerous. The reason it's dangerous is because it will curse your life. Number one, you need to know who you are in Jesus Christ. I don't mean to sound over, over spiritual, but that's where everything begins. If you don't know who you are in Jesus Christ, then you're going to be subjected to every other identity crisis that will come your way. As soon as you see somebody else that seems to have a better life than you do, it's going to make you question your own life because you're not sure in your own identity. But when you realize, I am, through the blood of Jesus Christ, a child of God, I am forgiven, there is a purpose and plan for my life, God has a hope and a future for me, I'm special to God, if God before me, who can be against me? You begin to have a solid sense of who you are in Jesus Christ. It is much harder to shape the core of a personality like that than one who is kind of tossed about related to their identity. That's why I think it's so important that we consistently uh, uh, make confessions of our, our identity in Christ. I am loved by God. I am a child of God. I do have a purpose in God. God is taking all the negative things in my life and life and working them together for good. So when I begin to make those confessions and affirmations in my life, and I believe it's valuable to do that out loud and consistently you know, like to, to build that identity because that's a rock. You're building your, your identity on the right thing. Because there are a lot of things that will vie for your identity. Your work will vie for your identity. Your relationships with other people will vie for your identity. But you need to be solid in who you are in Jesus Christ. Regularly remind you, well, remind yourself of who you are in Him. Number two, the second thing, right? The second thing you've got to do is you've got to embrace you. If you don't embrace you, you're going to spend your whole life trying to, to live up to somebody else. Somebody else's image. Somebody else's image of you. You've got to embrace who you are. Remember this. You are, I am unique. Your abilities are unique. Your abilities are awesome. You have some limitations, yes, but you also have abilities. When you see people that seem to have no limitations, you've got to stop and say, everybody's got some weaknesses. Everybody's got some limitations. We, we sit and we listen to someone like Pastor Chris Hodges this morning. I think I'd just love for Pastor Chris to preach one bad message. Wouldn't you? Make me feel a lot better, right? I, just, I wanted to bomb out one time, right? Just one time. Just make me feel a lot better, right? But I have to realize that there's a strength that he's playing on, but just like I have strengths and, and, and weaknesses, he has strengths and weaknesses as well. Everybody is in that, in that same realm. Our, our, our limitations are real and our strengths are real. And you need to focus on you. I must focus on me. My job is to multiply my abilities. My job is not to measure your abilities and measure myself against your abilities. My job is to multiply my abilities. In Matthew chapter 25, it's a great story. You know the, the, the parable well, where Jesus had the, the, had told the story of the master that had three servants and uh, he was going to go for, away for a period of time. He calls them together. And to one servant, he gives five talents, to one uh, two talents, and to one one. And he gave them each according to their... Anybody remember that passage? Each according to their what? Ability. Now think about it. There was a guy there that got five and a guy that got one. Never in the story do you see them complaining about how many they got. You see them, the story's all focused about not the difference between the numbers of abilities given. The whole story's about what they did with what, with what was given to them. And so you will never stand before God and give an account for somebody else's abilities. You never will, okay? 
God will not hold you. If you are a two-talent person, when you stand before God, He's not going to hold you accountable for five, but He will hold you accountable for your two. Okay? And so the valuable thing for us to remember is I've got to embrace me. I've got to find my lane, and I've got to stay in my lane. Because if I don't get in my lane, if you know anything about running a race, any kind of race, you can't run a race well without being in your lane. And I will tell you this, they will disqualify you if you get out of your lane. A lot of people are being disqualified. I mean that with quotes on it. I mean they're missing their moment and opportunity in ministry because they've gotten disordered and chaotic in their thinking because they're always thinking about themselves. How is my church in relationship to that church? Well, they had so many this Sunday. We only have this amount. And I, you know, this person has all these things going on in their life. I, don't, I have such a boring life in comparison. So what happens is we get this disordered thinking and this order, disordered thinking takes us out of our lane. It takes us out of our focal point which should be ourselves what is what what is in me that's been given to me by God that I have a responsibility to multiply in my life if I'm five I need to make it ten if I'm two I need to make it four if I'm one I certainly don't want to hide it in the ground I want to do something effective with it so you got to know who you are in Christ teach your kids know who you are in Christ because if they know who they are people can't tell them who they want them to be Right? You got that? If they know who they are, your young people in your church, teach them who they are in Christ. Because again, they're getting so much pressure from people around them to conform to somebody else's image of them. But know who you are in Christ and then embrace you. you nobody can be you. Nobody can be you. Everybody else is taken, so be you. And embrace the reality of that. Number three, third thing. Understand, this is an important one, understand the difference between significance and prominence. This has helped me tremendously over the years. Everybody is significant, but not everybody's going to be prominent. What does that mean? What is prominence? Prominence is, is the whole meaning of the word prominence is to stick out in a way that is observable and, and, and made popular. Someone that's prominent, we might think of as a celebrity. They're known and they're always appreciated. They're, they're the speakers at the conferences. They're the people that we know their names. And they're the prominent people. And what happens many times is we, we want to be, we want to arrive at that level. We want to have that kind of thing going on in our lives. And so we measure our significance based upon our, what we perceive to be our prominence. Are we popular? Okay. Does somebody want us to come and speak at a conference? Does someone want us to come and do some special thing? Is the pastor of the church asking me to do this? Why do they ask somebody else to do it? And so we have these, these, this, this need for promise. But there's a big difference between significance and prominence. You can be significant without being prominent. Everybody's significant. One of the greatest figures in my life was my grandfather. My grandfather was a... He was crippled in his legs. He walked on crutches as far as in most of his life and uh, never made much money primarily. He lived off, off of social, social security, had very little, had a small little four-room house. Was never known by very many people. But you know what? He was the, one of the most significant people in my life. He formed a lot of my thinking and a lot of the way that I lived. Why? Because he had some values that he imparted to me. And no one knew his name, but he was significant. Amen. And no one may ever know your name outside of a small little circle. And that's okay. You've got to be okay with that being okay. Mm -hmm. yeah. If God has prominence for you, He'll make you prominent. Yeah. 
You don't have to worry about that. You don't need to, to you need to walk around marketing yourself. God knows how to get you in front of people if you need to be in front of people. God knows how He knows how to do it. But what you need to embrace in your life, and I need to embrace in my life, is I'm not on a journey for prominence. I'm on a journey for significance. Got it? Okay. That makes sense to everybody? And there are far too many people in today's world. They're on a journey for prominence, and they haven't embraced the journey for significance. That's the valuable thing. So the fourth thing that I'll give you here is you need to decide what your relationship with social media is going to be. Because I believe that in today's culture, as I've already said, social media is one of the biggest traps that we get ourselves caught up in. And so you've got to decide what you can handle. And I've had people in this journey, some in my own family, that we've had this conversation, that some folks that I know that are really close to me, they said to me, you know, I, I just made the decision that I was not going to be on social media because I can't handle it. How do you know that an alcoholic should not go to a bar? Right? If they have a weakness in the realm of alcohol, then the last place they should be is in a place that serves alcohol because that's going to serve to their weakness. That's going to appeal to their weakness. It's going to, it's going to drag them toward out of their vulnerability. We understand that. But if you have a weakness, if you realize that I, have a, I already have a tendency to base my identity on what people think of me and, uh, and being, uh, having validation from other people and what I see happening in other people's lives, then one of the best things you can do is make the decision to, if you need to, completely go off social media. Let me tell you, the world existed before Facebook. Amen. The world existed before Instagram. The world existed before Twitter. There was a world before Facebook. And it's hard to imagine. And there's nothing wrong with any of those things. But you have to know what your relationship is to be to it. And you have to define it. I've had to define it in my life. People around me have had to define it in my life. We value it. I think it has tremendous impact. Potential potentially for good. But you have to define it. There's some, some of you that perhaps the best thing you can do that will bring a whole lot more order to your life is just to completely shut down your Facebook for a while. Sometimes you might just need to fast it for a couple of weeks, okay? Lay it aside. And you'll find, wow, I'm thinking better. My life is a little bit more ordered. But you've got to decide what your, your relationship with, the, with social media will be. Number five. This is important also. All these are how I try to think. Understand that social media is 98% is 98% of the time the highlights of someone's life. Now that 98% of the time, that's not a scientific poll. That's my guesstimation. I actually believe that people that buy pictures and put them on social media uh, as though the place they visit never been there in their whole life. They, they you know, they're they're promoting that. So there are things on social media that are just a lie. It's just not even true. And so what you see in social media, if it is, is true, generally is also the highlight reel of the other person's life. They don't, I don't, I'm not going to post what I look like or feel like necessarily after a staff member just left my church that I was depending upon to accomplish something for me. And I'm on my knees crying out to God, what are we going to do now? I don't normally post that. I don't post it when we had the lowest attendance Sunday ever. I don't, that, I'm so happy to announce on Facebook today this is the most horrible service we've ever had in our entire history. Please celebrate with us. No, we don't do that. Okay. Right? 
we get that, right? So what we put out is we put out the highlights of our life. And so you have to remember that if you're putting out the highlights of your life, what are other people doing? They're doing the very same thing. They're putting out the highlights of their life. And, and your life is always, if you measure your life against that, your life is always going to look boring and mundane. And you're going you're gonna to say, I don't have any, they don't seem to have any struggles in their life. Why do I have these struggles? And again, it brings exactly what James says. Where there's envy, there's disorder of every kind. against disorder of your thinking, and then that affects your emotions. Number six, realize that every success story has a backstory. Say that again. Every success story has what? A backstory. Back you see the success story, but you don't know the backstory of the struggle and the pain and the frustration. Some people will look at our church now. We have five different campuses in the D.C. area. A wonderful church, an amazing church. We have 92 different nations in our church. We've got an amazing, wonderful church. And I will tell you, we're at 30, we're, we're 33 year overnight success. <laughs> what are we? 33 years. Somebody just looked at us and said, well, how did they get that? They don't know the 33 years. Right? And so when you're looking at somebody's success story, you don't know the struggle, you don't know the pain, you don't know the back story that goes along with that. And so you have to put that in perspective. With every success story, there's always a back story. All right, good. Number seven. Remember that the person or persons you're measuring yourself against, this is key, may be measuring themselves against you. Right? Isn't that crazy? Here you are feeling miserable about this person's life. They're feeling miserable because their life doesn't match your life. Okay. And so it's such a lie, the adversary. That's what the, the devil is, a liar. He, is, he propagates and operates in, 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 in falsehoods. And so it's a foolish way to, to think and a foolish way to live. Number eight, remember the grass, is all, the grass always looks greener on the other side of the fence. Always. Okay. You've probably heard the statement before, the grass is not greener on the other side of the fence. The grass is greener where you water it. The mind says, I see across this fence and it seems like there's a grass that is greener there. And now, but there's this, again, deception that goes along with it. Number nine, you need to practice gratitude. This is huge. The reason that we often fall into the mistake of comparing ourselves with other people is because we haven't stopped to take account of the blessings in our life. You are blessed. You are blessed. You have some problems. You have some challenges. You have some difficulties. But if you just stop for a minute and you get out a piece of paper and you start writing down the things that you are truly thankful for, would you have a few things on your list? But here's the problem. We only do that generally in November every year. Well, thanks. But what if every day... We start every day as, as a part of our devotional time. By the way, Jesus helps you with this stuff, okay? But if He's going to help you with it, you've got to hang out with it, okay? Right? You've got to be with it every day, right? So, Jesus will help you with it, but you've got to be with it. Okay? So what if we started out every day in our relationship with God before we're asking Him for anything, before we're thinking about the problems in our life and the challenges we're facing? What if, just what if, we were to take five minutes, three minutes, ten minutes, whatever it is that 
just begin to write down or articulate that prayer to God. God, before I ask you for anything else, I want to thank you for it. 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 Just that exercise alone, not only is it appropriate spiritually, and I'll show that to you in just a moment, but it's also good for you psychologically. There have been uh, studies that have proven that the, the, the depression factor is lifted, depression is, it can be lifted actually by people uh, developing a gratitude journal. The gratitude, gratitude journal is a journal where you just write it every day what you're grateful for. Just very simply, today I'm grateful for. And that has had significant cure impact on, not for every form of depression, there's a variety of forms of depression. But there are many people who have been healed, if you will, of depression just by doing that very thing. And so psychologically, it's healthy for you. When you're in a mode of gratefulness, it changes your interaction with people. Do you know what kept the children of Israel out of the promised land? Grumbling. You know what got the, key, got the nation of Israel their first king? Comparison. We want a king like all the other Nations. Look at all these nations. Look, we saw them on Facebook. They all have kings. We saw an Instagram of the uh, Philistine king the other day. He's amazing. Why can't we have a king like that? Samuel, give us a king like all the other nations. We've got to have the king. And Samuel said, he goes to God. God says, hey, you know, don't, they haven't rejected you. They've rejected me. And I can be Lord over them. So tell them, but give them a king. But make sure you tell them what's going to happen when you get one. Right? So here's this thing that we, we miss out on the, the, the understanding of the blessing of God that changes our perspective, changes all that we are when we approach people, approach relationships, and approach our work because when we fail to just practice the, 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 the principle of gratitude. In Philippians chapter 4, 6 and 7, one of the greatest passages in the New Testament for your, for your psychological health. And I love it from the, from the Living Bible. Don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God your needs. And then Paul added this, and don't forget to thank Him for His answers. If you do this, you will experience the peace that only God can give, the peace that passes all understanding, will guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. Anybody remember that passage? Maybe from a different translation, but you remember. So don't worry about anything. Pray about everything. Tell God your needs. And then Paul said, oh, time out. And don't forget to thank Him for His answers. Why do you tell people at times, don't forget? Why do you tell your kids, don't forget your lunch? Because they have a tendency to? You know? You never tell them, don't forget to eat some candy. Right? Right? You never tell them that, right? Don't forget to play that video game. You never tell them that. But you have to tell them, don't forget your lunch. Don't forget to brush your teeth. These are important things, but we have a tendency to remember the things that we need to forget and forget the things we need to remember. Okay. So here Paul writes and says, don't forget. The reason he says don't forget to give him thanks is because we all have a tendency to forget to be thankful. Part of what will cure this comparison issue in your life is just to take the time to thank God on a consistent basis. Be grateful. Number 10, practice discipline. If you get, let's say that you're getting into some kind of 
social media or something that's creating disturbance inside of you, you can feel it happening. First of all, be aware of what's causing in you and then practice the discipline of shutting it down. I'm not, how many of you know that there are things that you do not because you feel like doing it, but because it's the right thing to do, right? Nobody ever went on a diet because they felt like it. I still look so much like not eating. I still like, like never having any more carbs or ice cream in my life. No. Nobody ever does it. Okay. The only reason that you do sometimes the healthiest things in your life is because you actually, actually have to discipline yourself to do what is right. And so there are moments when you have to have enough control of what's happening with you to stop the train on the track and say, wait a minute, time out. I'm not going to let this continue to affect me as it's affecting me. Number, number 11, we're just about done. I'm going to take time for some questions here. Number 11 is this. You need to make sure that you're growing yourself. Grow yourself. You know the best way to have an exciting life? It's not to compare your life to someone else. It's not going to make your life better. The best way to have an exciting life is to create one. Right? Got it? It's the best way to have a great life. Create one. You can create your own great life. By your attitudes, by what you do, how you spend your time. You know, if you spend all your time just, just sort of wasting time, doing very little productive, you're not going to feel very good about your life. But if you're growing and you're busy and you're learning and you're studying and you're improving yourself, you don't have a whole lot of time to compare yourself with anybody else because you're actively creating your own life. You're creating a life that has excitement and value and meaning and purpose to it. But it has to be done intentionally. Nobody ever creates an exciting life without doing it intentionally. You don't fall into an exciting life. You create one. Okay. I'm telling you this from, uh, from 30, going into our 34th year of ministry. You don't always create it. You don't always have exciting ministry. You have to create it. Okay? You have to stay, it has to stay in you because many times it is not happening around you. Many times you see no growth. Or you see or actually not even no growth, slow growth. Sometimes you actually, you're going in the opposite direction. Instead of growing, you're declining. You have to maintain this inside of you by creating this in your... The, the, the Bible says of David when he was in Ziklag and the, he had this moment uh, in, in 1 Samuel chapter 30. Go and read it. Great passage. Because in, he's in Ziklag. He's been away for a period of time. And the Philistines or some group had come in. I can't remember who the particular group was. Came in. The Amalekites maybe it was. Came in and raided. Ziklag, took everything, burned it down, uh, took all the wives and children away, and David comes back, and his, his men are there, and they're trying to stone him, thinking about stoning him, and the Bible says that David encouraged himself, and the Lord is God. Sometimes you just have to encourage yourself. You've got to grow yourself. When you encourage and grow yourself, and you're not spending as much time concerned about somebody else's life, and their view of you, and uh, how, what their, your validity coming from them. Got it? This helping anybody a little bit? Number 12, be kingdom-minded. I can't remember who it was that touched on this. Maybe, maybe Greg Surratt in his last session this morning, but I'll hit on it again since it's in the minutes. If you pastor 20 people or 100 people or 200 people, and that's God's calling for your life, and God's purpose for your life, and you're doing the best you can with what you've been given. God is just as pleased with you as He is with someone that's pastoring a church of 20 or 30,000. 
actually, he's more pleased with you if you're if you're doing it the best you can and they're not. You hear me? Okay. They may have greater numbers, but it, the numbers in, 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 the, in the larger sense of you looking at your life based upon the numbers, that, that, that does not create this significance with God. God doesn't measure. God measures, are you doing the best you have of what, are you doing the best you can with what you have? That's my definition of excellence. Are you doing the best that you can with what you have? And that's how God measures our life. And always remember this, that when, even though I, my church may not be growing or may not be doing the, the kind of things that I'd like to see it be, be able to do, but somebody else is, a kingdom-minded person thinks this way. A win for the kingdom is a win for me. Got it? Okay. So anytime, whatever's good for the kingdom is good for me. Say with me. Whatever's good for the kingdom is good for me. Right? Say it again. Whatever's good for the kingdom is good for me. Right? Let's really say that. Ready? Whatever is good for the kingdom is good for, who? for me. So if your church is growing and mine's not, it's still good for me. Why? Because it's good for the kingdom, right? Okay. Anytime the so we're on a team together, okay? So we're not competing with one another. I'm not competing with you. You don't have to compete with me. We're not. We're on the same team. So teams, t- t- people on the same team don't win against each other. They actually are working together with one another. So a win for you is a win for me. A win for the kingdom is a win for all of us. So if your church is growing and your work church is exploding and amazing things are happening in your church in a positive way, mine seems to be very mediocre and not much happening. I can still celebrate with you because it's still the team that's winning. See, at the Super Bowl, it doesn't matter if you're the star quarterback or you're the guy that helps bring the the Gatorade out to them at the end, in, in, in the breaks of the game. You still get a Super Bowl ring. Right? If you win the Super Bowl, you still get the ring. Okay? So the point that we remember is that we're on a team together. And so I'm not competing with you. And you're not competing with me. Your win is my win. And we work together in this. One last thing I'll give you here. And this is, I think, a good capstone for us. Shut, off, shut yourself off to gossip. Shut yourself off to gossip. Let me show you one. Gossip about others. What is gossip about? Gossip about others is really something being told about another person behind their back, right? And usually it's something that is derogatory about that person, right? Correct? So if I'm talking about you behind your back, usually when I'm spreading some conversation to another person... I'm doing it in such a way that I want, I want to bring you down. It's not that I'm necessarily building you up, right? So I'm going to build you down in some way because I'm now gossiping. And so I'm talking about some negative aspect of your life or something that you've done wrong or something that I perceive you've done wrong that I want to pass on to other people. Because here's the, here's the trick of gossip. If I can make you look small, I think I look bigger. That's, that's the trick of God. We don't think that way. That's exactly what's going on. If I can put you down, then suddenly it's lifted me up. But what we don't actually recognize is when we put another person down, actually we're demonstrating a lower level of living than the person we're putting down. 
But there's this thing that, 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 that I think a lot of times the failures, the weaknesses of other people, we want to seize on those because we, want to, we have low self-worth or low, uh, low value of ourselves and we, we want to make ourselves look better. So if I, can, if I can in some way seize on your weaknesses, if I can seize on your failure, if I can seize on you when you're down, if I can sort of stomp on you when you're down and drive you a little bit lower, it sounds like something that we would never do, but we do it all the time with our words. And suddenly I feel like I'm a little bit elevated. And what that's doing is really based in comparison because I'm getting comparing, I'm making my self-worth related to my view of someone else as opposed to God's view of me. So I think it's extremely valuable that we curtail, that we make sure that we put a stop to the gossip in our life. If you're going to say anything about it, here's a good, wonderful lesson that came to me from my mother. If you're going to say anything about somebody Say something good, right? So we communicate good because what that does, it um, builds the other person up that is healthy for us emotionally, psychologically, and spiritually as well. So hopefully that is a little bit of a help to us as we think about the dangers of comparison. I think by and large it's just a, an issue we have to always keep on the, on the front burner, being aware of. And it is a very important issue as parents. You need to monitor with your children. You really do. You need to monitor with your kids. If you're in youth ministry, you need to monitor it with your, with, your, with your kids in youth ministry because they're building their lives around this stuff. Okay? I mean, we're talking about kids that are getting severely depressed because they're, they're reading Facebook or reading Instagram and somebody was invited to a party that they weren't invited to. And these kind of things begin to work on them and it's damaging people psychologically. We could be the example that helps turn that corner uh, in, in the lives of people that we influence for the kingdom. Good? All right, so there's my little take on it. Hope it's beneficial. Let's take a little questions here. We hope you enjoyed this session from the ARC Conference. Our heart is that you are more encouraged and excited about your calling than ever before. For dates and locations, and to register for an upcoming ARC Conference, visit artconference.com.